Good morning, everybody. I know, I know, I know, I heard. Listen, real quick update. Um, we're probably missing one of the best World Cup finals to ever happen. And so if you're going to be watching your phone, I get it. That's more exciting than me. But dang it. Oh, they have no respect for the Lord's day. Um, where are we? What are we doing? Welcome to Restoration. My name is Ryan. If you're new here, we're glad you're here. Um, the crazy stories to catch you up on while we take our offering. So we're going to take our offering, um, and as that goes by, uh, jump in if you want to be a part of supporting this community. But um, last week, we collected a bunch of gifts, remember, yeah. for some families um, uh, connected to Arvada High School. What Arvada High School did is they put together uh, a list of students that they recognized economically needed some help over the holidays. And a cluster of churches, local churches, came together. We all picked some families to support. And then our church split those up between our house churches and different groups. And you all jumped in. And oh, it's so cool. First of all, I just want to say, we were the most organized gift group. Um, I'm just telling you right now. Like when we showed up um, on Thursday to give these gifts, the people were like pulling stuff like garbage bags or tearing, and we just had these. Never mind. Anyhow, the point is, we took all these gifts into. Um, they have a resource room at Arvada High, and um, I don't know if you know too many high schools that have their own food pantry, but Arvada High does. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And kids can come in at lunch and grab some food. And it's, it's, it's amazing. So we're carrying load after load of gifts. And um, we had two bikes that were cruising in there for two kids that have a hard time getting to school. So the bike really helps. And if you were part of that bike thing, um, that made the principal cry. It was amazing. So the principal's in tears. She's a pile. Um, assistant principal is just like blown away. Like, it's just like this crazy thing. Well, and it would be really exploitive if I took a video and showed it to you. Look what we did. Um, <laughs> so I'm just telling you the story. So um, met two of the guys that we bought gifts for, their families. I wasn't expecting to. And they came in and... Um, it was really, really powerful. Um, and I got a chance to talk to them. And there were, uh, I met Dominic and Xavier. And um, they were uh, just floored. In fact, the thing is, the, the real problem was we had this huge box of gifts and they didn't have a ride. And so the assistant principal was driving them home with these huge, giant boxes full of gifts for their family you know, and food for Christmas dinner. And so I just wanted to thank you, church, for being so generous. It's an amazing thing to be a part of a community that is so generous like that. I mean, just over an abundance for these guys. And it just kind of leads me into a conversation that um, I haven't had enough with you on. Um, it, and it has to do with 
uh, our, our church and our operations and our giving. And so one year ago today was our first Sunday here. I don't know if you recall, it was a little bit of a crazy show, but we moved in here and had our first gathering a year ago today. And since that time has just been kind of an interesting journey for us as a church, trying to figure out what it looks like to meet every week, trying to remind ourselves who we are. And then I took a three-month see you later and then come back and we're all just trying to figure out where God has taken us. And there's more on that coming in January. But as new homeowners, um, we're like, okay, what do we do with this place? And how much does it really cost? I mean, we knew how much the mortgage would be, but we didn't really know how much a building would be to maintain. So we held off on doing some major improvement stuff to just see what the finances were like. Um, we still have a house guest living with us in the form of Ralston Creek Church. And then just also like a whole bunch of churches during and post-COVID, there's been some movement on people from church to church, and some people have left church, and it's just been a little bit of a crazy journey. So what I wanted to do is give you an update financially where we are at the end of the year. Typically, we do this in November, um, and there's some reasons why we're, we haven't, but we are honestly a little short of our budget giving expectation for the year. And what happens is it's a unique thing when it comes to the ch a church budget. Typically, people give, you know, maybe once a month, things like that. But sometimes people give at the end of the year. And so if you were to take our whole uh, year budget, it would kind of like do this little thing. And then at the end of the year, there would be a big step up in giving. And so that's usually where we make up ground for whatever our budget was. And typically in November, we would have an annual meeting tell you what our next year budget forecast would be, but then also tell you, that, hey, there's a little bit of a gap between this year and the end of the year. We haven't been able to do that, partly because we have been re-architecting our finance stuff. And the reason why we've been re-architecting it is because now we're a family that, has, that owns a home, and we were a family that rented. And so we're changing some budget stuff, we're changing a little bit about how we oversee our finances and all the things that go on with it. And so what I'm here to do today is something I hate doing, and that's talking about money because I've actually been a part of and in churches that have done money pretty lame. And so I feel sometimes what you feel when a pastor comes up and talks about money. So um, we're just short a bit. We're trying to catch up about $16,000 between now and the end of the year. Now, all bills will be paid. The staff will be paid. Everybody will be paid if we don't make that. The point is, I'm just sharing that with you. Um, if you are a Consistent giver, thank you so much. If you are uh, maybe not been giving and you're just not sure about giving, I don't want to pressure you. That's not a that's you and God thing. But if you want to, we try to make it as easy as possible. 
Most people, I would say 90, 95% of people give through our online thing. Um, And so I just wanted to throw that out to you. You guys are a generous church. We are a pretty simple place. It's not a lot of bells and whistles. So we want you to continue to be generous, not just here, anywhere you see a need. We don't want all your money (laughs) that you would give. Uh, We want you to be generous to a lot of things, um, but consider this church as well. So if you have any questions, um, you can talk to anybody on leadership. Um, can I just do a hand raise on leadership team around the room? We've got a few leadership team people around the room here. Um, they seem to be weighted on this side. I don't know what that means. Um, and then we actually have a finance team. This is a group of people who really know finance as well, and they really care about this church. And so they have lended their expertise to helping us navigate that. And I would just like our finance team to raise their hands around the room. Still kind of waited this way. Thank you, Hannah, over there. Yeah. So Hannah's taken over this side of the questions, right? So if you have questions, just ask, okay? If you have questions about our budget, our finances, and then in the new year, January 15th, not only are we going to share with you the budget, but we're actually going to recast a vision for this church, who we are, where we're going, why we're going there. And I'm very excited about that. Cool? Can we change gears now? Um, no blurting out scores either. Don't do it to me. Don't, no, you just did it with your fingers. Don't. <laughs> so fun. Okay. Uh, we talked about Arvada High. We talked about, okay, here we go. <laughs> Speaking of sports, jumbotrons. Who likes a good jumbotron, right? <laughs> Listen, if you're at a game, and you see yourself on a jumbotron, what happens to you? <laughs> Not a, <laughs> there's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch people when they don't know they're on the screen, right? And then all of a sudden they see themselves and they could be dancing, but then when they see themselves, they start dancing harder or they point and they, and they do the thing. It's amazing. It's a phenomenon. Sociologists are like um, captivated by it. They've done some studies in regards to this idea that human beings love to be seen. We love to be acknowledged. We love to be noticed. And so a group of researchers got together and um, they decided to put together an experiment. And the experiment was they had three groups of people, and all three groups did the same task. And the task had to do with some sort of a paperwork thing uh, where they had to fill out this thing and they had to solve something and they had to turn their work in at the end when they completed the task. Group one um, turned their work in and the person taking their work thanked them and, and, and took their work and, and put it in a nice stack. Group two turned in their work and the person took their paper and just kind of threw it to the side. Just kind of ignored them, didn't acknowledge them, no eye contact, just took their work and threw it to the side. 
Group three turned their work in, and the person took it and shredded it. <laughs> and the goal of the researchers was to, to discover, and they, and they kind of looped back with all those people. How did you feel? One through five. How did, you know, they do all this data work on, on feeling, how they felt, and they found something totally fascinating. They thought, obviously, group three was going to feel like garbage compared to group one. But what they didn't realize, that group two, actually, their scores were the same as group three. Group two just turned their work in. There was no acknowledgement, and they just kind of threw it to the side. They felt the same exact way as someone who just shredded it. And so what I what I'm what's so interesting about that is that there's something about group 1 that those people felt acknowledged. They felt seen. We all want to feel seen and acknowledged. We want all want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are important enough we are recognized and we are acknowledged by others. All human beings want that. It doesn't mean if you're not, not even if, if you're an extrovert or introvert, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter your race or your geography or where economically, doesn't matter. All human beings want to be seen and acknowledged. There's a beautiful passage in Genesis chapter 16. It's beautiful, but it's kind of weird. It's the story of Hagar and Sarai. Abraham is married to Sarai, and they are waiting to, they've been promised a child from God. And Sarai is old, and they're waiting, and it's not happening. And something we don't understand, because it's not in our context, is um, this, this idea of lineage and carrying on the name and agricultural societies and needing workforce and you would breed your own workforce and blah, 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 blah. No son was coming. So typically in that culture, they would offer the servant to become a, bearing, uh, a child-bearing person for the patriarch. Something we don't understand. Sarai offers Hagar to sleep with Abraham to have an offspring. But there's tension, as you would imagine. Hagar ends up running into the dead, like fleeing, running away. And there's this beautiful passage in Genesis 16, 13, where Hagar meets an angel of the Lord and she uh, confesses this beautiful prayer saying, the God who sees me. Here she is, is in the middle of the desert. She is uh, running away. She is on her own to be a female on your own in that society. You have no one to take care of you. And she utters a name for God, El Roy. That is the only time in scripture it's used. The God who sees me. I think John chapter 1 is the ultimate act 
of God seeing us. And we've been in this series called Honest Advent, and it, we ripped the title from uh, Scott Erickson's book, Honest Advent. Many of you picked that up. By the way, there's a whole art gallery downstairs. Check it out. But Advent, the word Advent means coming. And this is what we do around this time of year is we remember the first coming of Christ in anticipation of the second coming of Christ, meaning that Christ came and he invaded flesh, and we'll go through that here, and to be with us, and yet he is coming again. And we live in this in-between where we know the promises of God and we know that God came for us and we know that God loves us, we know that God sees us and yet we live in this time where it doesn't feel like it's all fitting. And we're waiting for that day when it will completely be finished. And so we're going to go through John 1, 1 through 14, some of its recap, four different parts. Trust me, just because there's four parts doesn't mean it's long. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So just to go back a few weeks, in the beginning, very Jewish phrase, perked their ears, was the word, very Greek phrase, per, per, you, know, you know, they just pricked their ears to like this idea that philosophically the word was the fabric, the logos that kept everything together in a sense of the force that kept the world together. And so when John pulls this very Jewish phrase of in the beginning, when all the Jewish people would be like, yes, that means Genesis, that means God, that means creation, that means our story, and was the word, is all the Gentiles are going, ah, halagas, yes. John says those are the same person. Not only the same force, but the same person. A person with the power that holds the world together, the fabric that holds the world together. Not an abstract idea, but a person. And it's so significant, like all throughout the prophets, if you read the Old Testament prophets, it'll say the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It's Debar Yahweh in Hebrew. And it's a catchphrase. It's a way of authenticating the prophet. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. It's like, okay, this is a big deal. Nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in the New Testament, is there ever a recount of Jesus where it said, and the word of the Lord came to Jesus. Because Jesus is the word. And so that word... It's not an abstract idea. Like I said, this eternal word became flesh. Uh, a Bible translator named Ernst Fuchs, he said this, in the beginning was the yes, and the yes was love, and the love was the yes. God made the world out of his love. That's part one. 
Part two, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Do you know someone in your life that every time you're with them, they talk about the same thing? You're just like, okay, let's get it over with. You want to talk about this or that. John is that guy. 21 chapters in the book of John, he talks about light and darkness. It's just his thing. He loves talking about light and darkness. And the incarnation, according to John, is all about the light of God piercing the darkness. The reality is, is we know this to be true. This isn't just like a Marvel line or some superhero line. The idea of light always wins. When it comes to light and darkness, light always wins. And so this week I've been reflecting a lot on this idea of light and dark. Um, anybody else just so bummed how early it gets dark? It's just like... <laughs> It's like, if it's like 6 o'clock at night and it feels like 10. The first thing that we, I think is really important to talk about when we're reflecting on light and dark is this. The darkness always proves the light. Meaning, we agree that there's evil in the world. It's easy to know there's dark. This is one of my, this is the easiest way to have a conversation with a police officer about spiritual things. They have no problem talking about the fact that there's evil. They see it, like every day. And when we can agree on evil, we can agree that there's good. It's this idea of like, injustice proves that there is justice. Darkness will always prove the light. Second thing I want to say is this. The closer one gets to the light, the longer the shadows. Have you ever, um, well, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, we used to uh, play soccer on tennis courts. Just like high-paced, like three-on-three soccer thing. And some of the tennis courts didn't have lights. And so we'd pull our cars up and all turn our headlights on. And uh, that wasn't always a good thing either. But the point is, is like the closer you are to the light, the longer the shadow. And I think that this is the hard part sometimes for people. Um, usually when I watch people uh, surrender their life to Jesus, at first they're just like, yeah, this is the best. And they're really, really excited, really zealous, and they're reading their Bible, and they're going to everything, and they're you know, totally excited. But the closer you get to the light, the more you see your own shadow. Meaning the more you see how you have places in your life that are broken. And a lot of times there's like this drop off after where people kind of start getting discouraged. And they start thinking to themselves, oh man, I, I'm kind of a mess. And the reminder is, yes, you are. <laughs> Thanks for joining the club of all of us with long shadows. 
The third thing is this, the darker the dark, the brighter the bright. Has anybody gone to one of those um, areas of the world that um, do, what, what they called the star thing? And the, that's it. You all just yelled it at me. Perfect. Where it's just like the stars are just like, boom. And you feel almost like you're getting swallowed up by it. It's because of how dark it is. Every single light just is brighter. And I think that in some ways, this is the beautiful part for us to lean into. That no matter how dark the world gets, the brighter the church should be. The brighter the people of God should be. Not unlike, hey, look at us but like in our love for people. And I mean, I'm telling you, watch this on day, dropping those gifts off. They, they experience some real light. And the fourth one is this, light never shines for the light. There's no need to turn a flashlight on in the middle of the Right? One of my favorite things... Um, one of the favorite things, uh, tools that the police department gave me as a chaplain was my flashlight. And it's like this long. And it's just one of those <laughs> huge, ridiculous flashlights. And um, I love it. <laughs> like whenever, they're, whenever we're like doing something, they're like, hey, you got a flashlight? I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> and like I get to like, you know, we're, you know, looking for stuff or whatever. It's super fun. Plus, it's, it's my only weapon of self-defense, right? <laughs> it's like someone comes at me, I'm like, let's go, you know. But lights are like, the, the light never shines for the light. And so I think uh, John just did a beautiful thing to talk about the difference, like the stark difference of a pitch black room, pitch black cave, if you've ever been caving, and then a tiny little light lights up. It just changes everything. Part three. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. This is last week. We talked about being children. We talked about this idea of curiosity and wonder and dependence. We talked about this this beauty of being pulled into the family of God, that we are reawakened with uh, the intent behind our existence as children in God's family. And we talked about that verse in Zephaniah where God talks about singing over his people. And I love the segue, this song that we just sang. It's this idea of God singing over us, that his love for us is as of a father who loves his children and sings over them, that we are heirs, that we are sons and daughters by right not by purchase, not like our purchase. And there are thousands of promises in scripture, and I think this is like the top, this beautiful picture. And so for some people who feel alienated, who hunger to be loved and yearn for meaning and truth, we have this promise set before us. We have this feast in front of us to dig into. 
And you could hear that and just go, oh, that's too hard, that's too weird, I don't know about that, and just kind of move on. But there's something, if we're really honest, there's something about being woven into a group of people that feels pretty special, right? And whether that was uh, your family of origin, whether that was uh, a community you've been a part of, a team, whatever, some people at work, like woven into a group of people is a really special thing. But to think about that God wants to weave us into his family. See, love is this weird thing. It's this non-substance, but it's a precious commodity, that we as humans not only desire, but we actually need. We actually physically need it. We actually emotionally need it. More than just a concept, it's not just conceptual, but on an emotional level. It's like this glue to our relational connectedness and wholeness that we just need it. We crave it. Um... There is, uh, I was, this isn't in my notes, and this has just been coming up because I've caught a few videos. And I don't know, this again, you're going to probably think I'm weird. Um, there is a videographer in Southern California that used to be in advertising, and he got sick of his job. He got sick of making money, helping rich people make more money. And so he took his equipment and he went down to Skid Row and he started making videos, interviewing people who are homeless, interviewing people who are drug addicted. And the stories are just incredible. And they are men and women who have had broken pasts and broken, and there's just this, this ache and this yearning for connectedness and to be seen and to be whole and to be loved. And they've just been a fascinating um, I've caught a few of them, and I've just been blown away by it. And the stories are incredible. Um, and, and that's where I was going with that, because that wasn't in my notes. But um, his whole thing is called Soft White, Under, Soft White Underbelly. I don't know why he named it that. But he says there's an underbelly to society that we don't see. And he wanted to bring the light to it for a lot of reasons. And um, so if you start watching them and you just think I'm a weirdo, then so be it. Part four, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as Eugene Peterson said, the word moved into the neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What does this mean for us? The word became flesh. It's a theological term called incarnation. We'll break that down. In means in. You guys are doing great. <laughs> Carne. Anybody? Carne asada. <laughs> Meat. And then, so in that kind of chunking up that word, it's in flesh action. In fleshing. 
Philippians 2, 6, 8 talks about this. It's an early church hymn, poem, creed that Paul quotes when he writes a letter to the church at Philippi. And he's talking about how the church should treat each other and that Christ should be their example. But he says this, who, Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in an appearance of a man, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You've heard that before, many of you. But that phrase, something to be used to his own advantage, is the similar terminology that we use in our world to talk about a coup. That Jesus didn't come down here to start a coup and to make things work for him. Jesus, not for his own power, but for love, but to give grace and mercy, the incarnation of God is God willingly giving up his independence for the purpose of love. To see us. To be with us. Now, some of you in this room, I get it. You struggle with God's love. And part of the reason you struggle with God's love is because just like some of those folks that uh, are interviewed on some of those videos, a lot of us come with wounds, not being seen, not being loved. We don't trust love. We don't know what love is. And sometimes it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that God loves us so much that he wants to fold us in to his family, that God would sing over you, that God would leave a perfect, loving union relationship with himself and come to this planet in fleshing to live as a human being, to be with us, to move into our neighborhood. You have a hard time with that. I get it. I know it. Sometimes we see God's love for us really only in hindsight. Sometimes some of you have gone through a hard season and it wasn't until well after that season that you're like, oh, okay. I see where God walked with me, how, how God used this person and this group and this instance to love me more, to show me his love for me. I, some of you are in that season like right now. Some of you are, are, are maybe like Hagar and you've, you're in the desert. You're alone. You feel absolutely alone. And you need to know that just like Hagar, God sees you. That word Elroy is actually uh, is some Hebrew derivatives of it that have this idea of a shepherd watching over his flock. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the Christmas story is this idea of it, it comes, the word comes to, and, and is shown, the angel comes to shepherds watching over the flock. The God who sees us. 
And you know what's crazy? It's like we have this picture of God seeing Hagar. But if you read the Gospels carefully, you see Jesus, God in fleshing, seeing people. Seeing people, seeing a leper. Seeing people that the rest of the world doesn't like to see. Kind of like this videographer in L.A. Seeing people, hearing their stories, meeting them, being with them, that is the God of Scripture. That is Yahweh in flesh. The God who sees is God with us. Now, as we come towards the table, I just want to share with you one of the ways that you can love people well is by seeing them, is by looking them in the eye, being with them in their pain and being with them in their story, even if it's messy. Being seen makes all the difference. Being loved, having a God who chose to be with us makes all the difference. The difference between light and dark. It's that, it's that, it's that much of a difference. And so when we come to the table, what we're doing today is we're invited into something that the, ch- the early church coined and nicknamed the love feast, which is kind of weird sounding. In fact, it got a lot of pushback in the early church days. Roman emperors are like, what is this love feast? This sounds... And listen, all the pagan worship that was going on during the day... That was some creepy stuff. But the fact that the church called this a love feast, why would they do that? Well, here's the reason why they did that. It's because Jesus takes actually the elements of Passover, the elements of this Old Testament recurring celebration and humbling that the people would do in honor of and remembering, because God said, remember, that God rescued the people out of Egypt by the shedding of blood. And so Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, took the bread that was normally passed it in Passover and broke it and passed it around and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my flesh broken. And then he took the cup and he passed it and they shared it. And he said, this is my blood spilled for you. This is what is happening. And he said to participate in this together as a reminder, as not just a reminder, but as a 
a reconnection to the fact that we are God's people, we are God's heirs, we are God's sons and daughters. And God sees us and he's with us. So I'm going to pray. And here's where I'd like you to just take time and sit and think and reflect. Is this hard? That God sees you? That God loves you? That God, that God came to be with you? What does that mean for you today? What does that mean for us as a community of heirs, of sons and daughters? Let me pray this morning. Father, we are overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed that you would see us and love us enough to come be with us. We see this in the life of Jesus. Seeing the unseeable, the unlovable, the pushed away. But I, I'm just thinking of, of this passage also with Nicodemus that Jesus saw this very proper, put-together, religious man who snuck around at night to meet with Jesus because he was afraid of being seen. God, some of us in this room are afraid of being seen. We're afraid of being seen because we're we're not sure what will be seen. But your table is open to us. That your sacrifice for us, that your broken flesh, that your spilled blood is for us. It's part of what remakes us. It's part of what pushes us towards maturity, towards growth, towards tove. And God, if we're honest, we desperately do want to be seen and loved. So God, we come to this table with hearts open, with hands open, with great celebration that we're a part of your family. Amen. Come when you're ready. It's gluten-free here. Take your time. <laughs>